Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am so excited to welcome Amy O'Dell to leave your mark. Amy, we have known each other for a very long time. And for everyone listening, Amy is an amazingly brilliant fashion and culture journalist and the author of not just one, but now two books. Her newest book, Anna, the biography. And by the way, Anna does not need a last name. And if you don't know what the last name is, you should just hang up this episode right now. No, I'm kidding. Anna Wintour, of course. Her work has appeared in New York Magazine, The Economist, 1843, Time, Cosmo, Elle, and numerous other publications. But of course, her previous book, Tales from the Back Row, was optioned by Sony. And Amy, you know, this intro actually, it's funny, when I saw your bio, I was like, this is not sufficient. Like, we need to talk about that because there's, <laughs> like, I'm just going to start with, you literally made the cut what it is at New York Magazine. So I, just, <laughs> I feel like we need to judge this a little bit, but let's start with, hi, it's so good to see you. I see you on your reels you. all the time. I've been watching everything in awe of what you have put together in this book, Anna, so let's start off with quick background. Where are you from? I'm from Austin, Texas. I did not know that. Yeah. And I'm missing it so much because as you know, in New York, it's been freezing despite being almost May. It is freezing. I, you have no accent whatsoever. Well, I've lived in New York for half my life now. And both my parents are New Yorkers. So occasionally I slip and say y'all. <laughs> but that's probably as close as it gets. <laughs> Oh my God, amazing. You went to NYU, you studied journalism. So you always kind of knew this was going to be your thing. I did discover early in my career that I loved journalism and I loved research and writing. And the way I came to that realization is I just asked myself when I was 18, I was in my first year of college, what I enjoyed doing in school. And I think I was probably in the minority of people who really liked researching and writing papers. Like if I was in the library researching and then sitting down and writing something up, I really liked it. And I thought, well, the closest thing to that is journalism. So I went for it and I just loved it right away. I never looked back. But you really came upon fashion sort of accidentally. I did. Yes. So as you mentioned, I was writing for the cut before it was the cut. It was like, uh, you must remember this. I forgot what they called it. Show and talk maybe, maybe. on newyorkmag.com. 
And basically reporters and the thug girls, Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan, who are so brilliant and great themselves, but they would come to New York and they would go to the shows and they would write up funny items about the celebrities. I would go in my capacity as a pretty reporter and I would interview celebrities and designers and write up my little items. And that just ran during fashion week. And then they decided to expand it to be a full-time thing. And this this sounds so old compared to today's internet with like TikTok and Reels and everything. But this was like in the blog era in 2008. It kicked off in this full-time iteration. And I was the first lead writer on that. Yeah, and that was kind of an accident. I always was interested in fashion and I didn't understand it. I guess I'm still trying to understand it, but I did not understand it even though I felt interested in it. You know, like I had this idea of it based on growing up in Texas and loving magazines, watching Project Runway, but like watching Project Runway, that's not telling you about the fashion industry. So I learned that after I started at the cut. (laughs) Well, let's talk about what you did for the cut, because I think it's also so important. Like you really, really created something unbelievable because it was, of course, you know, New York Magazine had already decided it was going to be called The Cup, but you were really the person to give it its voice. And I read somewhere, which I thought was really interesting. You said, I read people who I think are great and I try to figure out why I think they're great. And I try to apply that to what I'm doing. And I think that's such an interesting tactic to hone into when you talk about brand voice, because you did that, but yet you so distinctly made it what it is. Like it was completely unique. And by the way, like pretty snarky. So how did you come up with it? Well, you know, with a job like that, you have to fit into New York Magazine. You have to fit into the publication, of course, in the way that if I'm freelance writing an article for Business of Fashion, I'm going to write it in their voice. If I'm writing an article for my newsletter on Substack, amyodell.substack.com, I'm going to write it entirely how I want to write it. So New York Mag had a really, and still does have a very distinct online voice. It was very bloggy, very pithy. The internet was snarkier then. And I being so young, I was like 21 or 22 when I started that job. And I didn't know that much. God bless the people in New York Magazine for hiring me and giving me this job. But I didn't know that much. I wasn't really afraid. So I just went for it. And um, I really loved Chris Rosler and Jessica Pressler. Jessica Pressler is a writer many people will know whose story about Anna Delvey inspired the Netflix series. And I just thought what they were doing on Daily Intelligence or was brilliant. And I think the New York Mag site continues to be brilliant. And after I left the cut, many brilliant people wrote for it, edited it. Stella Bugby, Lindsay Peoples, Wagner is there now. Yeah. So I guess it was just kind of being naive and not having that fear. I'm curious, do you think that level of snarky still works today when you're talking about people? No, it doesn't because social media is so different now. We didn't really have social media in 2008. It was like, I remember when they added comments to the New York mag site and that was a big (laughs) deal because that wasn't the new thing was just having comments. And now comments are not even on some sites anymore. They just sort of leave it all to happen on social media. I think Twitter, when did Twitter start? I joined Twitter. Six maybe? I feel like I joined when I was at the cut. Yeah, but it was all new and I don't remember when Facebook introduced newsfeed, but that wasn't a thing. I don't even remember there being like share buttons or there used to be like buttons on articles, I think. So like this was all evolving and it just wasn't, it just wasn't like it is today. You left your mark there for sure. And then you took this job at Cosmo and you, this is a very well-known fact. You tripled their website traffic when you got to Cosmo. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, during your time there, how did you do that? I'm trying to remember. Um, <laughs> I think it was like, you know, I had some experience at BuzzFeed as well. So after the cut, I went to BuzzFeed and there I really learned about viral content and packaging stories, writing headlines, because then we were in really a social forward internet mm-hmm. landscape. So it was applying some of those tricks and then also trying to give the site like a really distinct voice and a funny voice. And I really didn't want to write down to the audience because what I've noticed, what I felt about women's media for my whole life is that it kind of has always written down to the audience. And I just didn't get why that was the de facto voice was kind of this watered down voice uh, when obviously young women are brilliant, smart, and they don't really talk to their friends like that. So it was kind of like making it conversational, but also intelligent. And you certainly did. So I know, obviously, you have a new book that you're promoting, but I always like to give some love to the first book because, you know, they're our firstborn, right? Right. So (laughs) Tales from the First Row was a huge success, obviously optioned by Sony for film and television. It's interesting. I would love to hear your take now. Like, does the first row even matter anymore? Oh, what a question. I would love to know what you think about that. (laughs) (laughs) You you go first. Does it matter anymore? I haven't been to a fashion show in so long, not only because of the pandemic, but also because I've been in my basement office at home where I am now writing a book for so long and that didn't really require going anywhere. But I think it's like, what is the purpose of a fashion show? Mm -hmm. A fashion show used to be an important way for the industry to signify who was important and who was not important. And obviously we have the internet, we have social media, which can do that today Mm -hmm. and influencers. And, you know, you can see whose content is performing, who has the most followers. So I don't, I don't think it matters as much anymore. And then a lot of the runway shows too, they're more, I'm really curious to know if you agree, Elisa, but they seem more theatrical. Mm -hmm. So it's not so traditional. I feel like what we see less of, at least what travels on the internet, it's less of the, you know, the room with the bleachers and the people just sitting there. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we're more likely to see like an unusual setup or some theatrical setting where like there might only be a front row or there might only be standing, you know? So I feel like the runway show has evolved too, but what do you think? Do you think it matters? So I actually don't think it matters at all because so many of the people who matter are paid to be in that front row. So it's not that hard if you have big budgets to get really good people in your front row who don't care about your brand and and really are just there because they got a paycheck. But besides that, you know, yes, I agree from the entertainment value and from a social media perspective, every brand knows they need to cut through the noise, right? And they have one hour during that week to actually have, you know, a hundred percent share of voice on like New York Fashion Week or Paris Fashion Week or Milan or London, wherever. So I think it's very different than sort of how we grew up in fashion. It's it's crazy to me. And Say, continually changing. Yeah. It's continually mm-hmm. changing. You know, listen, I love fashion, but I think I think the format has to evolve too. So previous to writing this book many years ago. You famously failed at your very own interview with Anna Wintour. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to briefly discuss how that went, but also, would you ever, if someone told you right when you got that rejection letter, hey, don't worry, because one day you're going to write this epic book about her, would you have believed them? 
No, I, um, <laughs> I don't think so. Now I was at the cut and I was called in for an interview and I wrote about it in Tales from the Back Row. And it was an extraordinary experience because Anna Wintour was very much a celebrity to me, but I did my best. And I think I just, I really just wasn't a fit for Vogue and that was okay. I was fine with that. And now it, it's worked out because I've had the opportunity to write this book and I'm above all so happy doing what I'm doing now. But yeah, I just don't think I was right. I, it was very flattering to be called in, but I was not a Vogue person, Vogue staff. I don't know. I just wasn't that. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did do extraordinary preparation and research. I did as much research as I could before I went in there. And that was helpful. And then what I learned in reporting the book about like her manner and how she is and um, and all of that is that she's not a small talker. Like you're going to walk in there. She's going to tell you where to sit. You're going to sit down. It's going to be fast. And that's just how she is with everybody. And if you get 15 minutes, that's a long time. She's probably going to give you the look where she starts at your shoes and she works her way up. And that's just how it is. She'll ask you what museums you've been to recently and what exhibits you've liked. (laughs) Yes. She screens for pedigree. I mean, many, many people said this, that she screens for pedigree. Probably the people who get into the room have the skills, the know-how, you know, so then she's screening for, for pedigree, which as we know, there's some downsides to that as well. For sure. And I think she learned that in uh, June, 2020 when she had to sort of have a reckoning with that, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. So after all this immense research, all the work and time and blood, sweat and tears you've put into this book, three words to describe Anna Winter, because you're now the premier expert. What are those words? Complicated. Mm, Good one. Um, Contradictory. Mm. So far we like C's. (laughs) And surprising. Wow. Those were so good. I actually have chills. Good. You're very good with words. Gee, I wonder. You should work in journalism. Um, so she's held her throne for 30 plus years. 30 years? 30 years. 34. 34 years. Mm-hmm. What would you describe as her one superpower? I could list more than one, but I think the extraordinary thing about her that was not apparent to me before writing this book, maybe mm-hmm. you had some sense of it given your career and your experiences with her. But she has an extraordinary network of people who she advises, who seek her out, who she's friends with, who she has these sort of uh, business social relationships with. And they think that she's great and they want her advice and they trust her. And we see them walk up those steps to the Met Gala. That happens on Monday. So that is kind of the physical embodiment of her network. And I think this is really her power, especially today when you don't need Vogue to tell you what's going on in fashion anymore. We have the internet. It's really different. When she started in 1988, if you wanted to know what was going on, yeah, you had to pick up Vogue or you had to pick up a magazine like Vogue. And that is not the case anymore. So I think it's really this network of people that she has built up. And I talk to them who seek her advice who trusts her advice and who thinks she's great. Tom Ford said to me, he hopes she never leaves her job. Of course, that's not possible. But Tom Ford is one of the biggest names in American fashion. 
you see this outside of fashion too. I learned that Bradley Cooper, when he was putting together a star is born and he had a script, he sent it to Anna seeking her advice before he had cast Lady Gaga in the lead role. I thought that was incredibly surprising. (laughs) Wow. Let's just stick with Tom Ford for a second. But he recently said that he thinks the Met has become too costumey, right? Yeah. He told me that in our interview. (laughs) Yeah. So isn't that a dig? I don't know. I don't know how he meant it. I can't speculate as to what he what he intended. I was talking to him about the Met Gala and he co-chaired in 2003, I believe, for the Goddess Exhibition. And I was asking him what that was like and how he worked with Anna. And he told me, I mean, it was a great story. Um, he wanted to be super involved and that's kind of the Tom Ford way. He's now president of the CFDA and he's been mm-hmm. super involved in that. And he was so involved that Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, who was planning the gala at the time, sent the chef to London to cook the meal so that he could see it. And then he, he said he wanted to like art direct it perfectly. I'm paraphrasing, but he said that he was like, you know, if it was like carrots on the plate and it was orange, I said, Anna, you can't have that because you you just can't can't have carrots. Doesn't look right. So he said he was really involved and in the weeds and that's kind of the level to which Anna is involved. So I think it's interesting that they both have that and they both really like each other and consider each other to be friends. And he also said when he's with Anna, they don't talk about fashion. Interesting. He's a Virgo, right? And she's Scorpio. She's a Scorpio. I don't know his star sign. I think he's a Virgo. I'm going to guess that. So you wrote this amazing piece, like I think this week in time. Was it this week? Uh, Yeah, that was an excerpt from Anna, the biography. Yes. Mm. Well, I loved it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You said that, you know, Anna said to have modeled her demeanor after her father, Charles. Is it an act to wield control or is it like a true personality? Because the people who work for her generally like her. Yeah, this is absolutely true. They do like her. And Tani Goodman actually said something to me that I thought was very interesting. I think we were talking about how, you know, Anna's an icon and, you know, you're working for an icon <laughs> and obviously her staff works very hard, but Tony Goodman was like, oh yeah, you get over that very quickly. And I think that to succeed with Anna, I mean, and look, Tony Goodman is a legendary fashion editor, star in the industry, independent of Anna has done so much amazing work, but I think that if you're going to succeed under Anna, you kind of have to be able to treat her. Yes, she's your boss, but you have to be able to treat her like a normal person. Mm-hmm. A lot of people said that or indicated that, that they felt like they were going to be most successful if they just treated her like a normal person. One person said to me, I was so scared, but then I just said to myself, she's a grandmother and like went in and asked the question that they needed to ask. And Anna seemed surprised, but then was like fine with it because when she walks around Conde Nast, people like press themselves up against the wall. They're so intimidated by her. And she really responds to people who can just treat her like a human being. So now we get to like my anecdote, which is the perfect segue for this. So yes, and I agree. And listen, I adore Virginia Smith and Sally. I mean, they're incredible talents themselves, but <laughs> for every single Vogue preview, my entire career. So, you know, obviously she shows up an hour early, basically, right? So Mm -hmm. everyone listening, if a call time for a Vogue preview is 9 a.m., you better be ready at 8 a.m. because she will walk in there. So actually, before I tell you my anecdote, did other people tell you this? And do we know, like, is that just to like 
get people off their game to like rattle people or like she just wants her day to start? Like what is the real thing behind the fact that she does not show up on the time she says she is going to? It's so insane. Yeah. Everybody knows if you're not early, you're late. Who works at Vogue? People speculate about that. And I can't say what's going through her head. Only she knows what's in her head. Some people will say it's a power move. Some people will say she's just very efficient. She just wants to get her stuff done and over with. Um, One person said she just wants everyone to be able to finish their day so that they can go home to their families at the end of the day. (laughs) Um, And so she tries like be fast and make all of her decisions. So I don't know. I can't speculate as to what's going on in her head. Some people think it's all very calculated and some people don't. Well, I'm going to go with calculated because what I was going to say a few minutes ago was every single time a team would run in and they'd be like, is she here yet? Is she here yet? And I'll be like, no, she's not here. Calm down. It's okay. Do you want water? Do you want to sit for a minute? Like panic stricken that they were there after her. And I will tell you one time. So do you remember back in the day, Donna Karen, we had our shows at 557th Avenue? I do. Okay, mm-hmm. on the 14th floor. But reception was on 15. So you couldn't get off on 14 unless it was open and unlocked. So one time we were having a fashion preview with Vogue and these are private appointments where Anna and the very select team members come to see the collection with Donna, with a designer, whoever it is. And she's late. And I'm like, oh my God, like, where are they? Like, why isn't she here? And then I'm like, oh my God, maybe there was a problem with the elevator. Like, I don't know. So I get in the elevator to go down to the lobby to be like, maybe they're just like stuck or there's a line or something. And I get in the elevator and she's in the elevator with two other people from Vogue. And I'm like, oh, and you can appreciate this because you know me, but like, I don't have like multiple settings in my personality where I'm like, oh, it's Anna, <laughs> I need to act a certain way. So I'm just like my yeah. normal self. So I'm like, oh my God, Anna, I'm so glad you're here. Like, I was like completely like, as if I would be like, Amy, I'm so glad I got you. Like, where have you been? And she goes, we have been riding in this elevator for 40 minutes and couldn't get off on 14. And I'm like, she goes, this is unacceptable. And I'm like, well, your assistant didn't tell you that you should get off on 15 because that's our reception. And she looked at me and I'm like, so would you like to go to 15 now? Or would you like to go back down to the lobby? (laughs) And I was like, zero fucks given because I was like, that is not my mistake. So it's just so funny. So, I mean, my interactions with her have been (laughs) a little questionable. That's hilarious. I'm sure she was not in the elevator for 40 minutes. She would not be riding an elevator for 40 minutes. I should have checked camera footage. That's such a funny story. I know. So funny. She doesn't like to have her time wasted. I mean, in a sense, most people can appreciate that. Well, guess what? Neither do I. And our Vogue preview started late. Probably had women's wear coming right after and they would be late. But wait, let me ask you this, if you can say. So when you're in the preview with her, mm -hmm. like, what does she say? Is it more like you're reading the tea leaves and like looking at her expression? Um, It's one of the most awkward experiences you can ever have because especially in our particular showroom, it was almost like having like a cement front row. So she would sit, everyone would sit and the models would come out and Donna would be like, you know, describing the fabrics and this and that, you know, Donna's clothes were always so intricate and like just unbelievably made and artisan and all that. She wouldn't really say anything. 
just, right. and, and we're not talking a fashion show here. We're talking, there's six people in a room and it's the most awkward silence. Like I wanted to die every single time. And I would always help Donna, like try to make it go faster. Right. Cause it's like, let's get eight models so they can change really quickly. So this can be really fast. So we don't have to like sit through it. It was, it was torture. And by the way, like she had a great relationship with Donna. She still does. I'm sure very kind and, you know, self respect and all that for both a mutual respect rather, Mm -hmm. but she'd never showed her cards. And afterwards I would always call Virginia and I would be like, okay, so what do you think? And she's like too much black, too much black. (laughs) Yeah. She doesn't like black. That's not, yeah. So I asked so many people on her team because I was convinced going into this project and this is really nitty gritty fashion stuff, but I'm sure your listeners are into that. I was convinced going to this project that she would go into these designer previews and say, do this, do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Nobody said she did that. She didn't. Yeah. And I think it was Tani again, who said, you can tell if someone likes something by looking at them. For sure. And to that point, she would never say do this or that in the preview. But then they would just not shoot it. So then you have your answer because, you know, I, I mean, we were major advertisers. So every time it was me saying to Virginia, like, you got to find something. Something's got to work. Right. Can we make something in another color, you know? And then sometimes you would hit it on the mark and she would be joyful. And several times she ordered personals to actually have it. But okay, back to you. You yeah. did like over 250 interviews for this book. Is that correct? Yeah, I had more than 250 sources and multiple interviews with a lot of those people. How long did this take you to write? The whole thing was about, I guess, three years. And it was a lot. It was really hard. In the beginning, I thought I wasn't going to be able to get it done. I was going to have to give up because I was approaching all of these people and getting no, 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 no. People hung up the phone on me. People kind of laughed at me like, oh, this little girl is going to try to do this project. And this is one of the reasons I say Anna is complicated, but half the people in the beginning were kind of like, she's going to shut you down uh, and she's going to use all the might of Kanye Nast to mess with what you're doing and you're not going to get it done. And the other group of people were kind of like, you know what? I thought she was a great boss and I liked her and I bet she's going to help you. The second group of people turned out to be right. So fearful that she might shut it down. I went about it surreptitiously for as long as I could. And then her office got wind of it around halfway through the process, around a year and a half into it. And I talked to them and I said, look, I'm writing a biography about Anna. It's about a woman in a unique position of power with extraordinary longevity, et cetera, et cetera. And what came of that conversation is that they sent over a list of names of close friends and colleagues that they would help facilitate interviews with. Wow. And that included people who worked at Vogue, like Virginia Smith, Hamish Bowles, and then also other people like David Hare, who's a personal friend of playwright in London, Serena Williams, Tom Ford. And after that happened, it was a lot easier to get access to other people in her, uh, you know, who had worked closely with her over the years or who were personal friends. I also asked for her to sign off on me speaking with a number of people. She didn't say no to anybody. Wow. So that was really extraordinary access. And that's why I really believe that this is the definitive book on her because I, I talked to all these people, Grace, Andre, Virginia, Tani, you know, like you name it, Phyllis, Posnick all these great legendary editors who I'd spent my career following. So that was really extraordinary to get that access. Well, that is a direct compliment to your skills because 
she knows you as a writer, I am sure. And even though I'm sure over the years at the cut, maybe you wrote some things that weren't the most spectacular about Anna Winter. I can't imagine in New York Magazine, but like you have a reputation as this incredible journalist and she's not stupid. She knows you're going to do a really fair and thorough job. And by the way, like it's all out there, right? Like people understand that she's, like you said, a complex figure. And, you know, if someone's going to do it, I think you're a great person to do it. Thank you. Yeah. She knew who I was because I had been in her office twice. So, you know, I can't tell you why she made that decision, but the book is ultimately, I think, fair. It covers her triumphs and her troubles. I tried to make it really objective. And, you know, what I want is for people to read this book and be able to make up their own mind about her because there has been so much out there about her over the entire course of her career. So many false rumors, so many misconceptions. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this book really sets the record straight and also just gives people the opportunity to take it in and decide what they think. So, you know, obviously people understand that she is extraordinarily powerful. I don't think people understand the kind of deals that she's brokering behind the scenes of how she is literally appointing heads of design at certain houses. And it's all really sort of like a group effort, right? If there's like a major head of design who steps down, it's like Anna's that first phone call about who should fill that role. Right. But yet there are people who are super successful in the fashion industry. I'll name Love Shack Fancy as an example, or even, you know, Alice and Olivia as an example of brands that were never really, and I know Rebecca's mom worked at Vogue, so that's a little bit different, but like they were never really embraced or like let into the inner circle. There's all these brands who have managed to build their businesses without sort of the glow of the sun of Anna shining down on them. And she decides who she sort of gives her blessing to. Do you think that like that is still important to like make it today? I know there are people like Isaac Mizrahi that you mentioned who have sort of like fell out of her graces or, you know, how important was it and how important is it today? Do you think? This is the ultimate question about Anna. And RJ Cutler, when he made the September issue, went out there and said, you know, if you want to be a successful filmmaker, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, (laughs) if you want to be a successful filmmaker, you don't need Steven Spielberg's blessing. But if you want to be a successful fashion designer, Mm -hmm. you need Anna's Anna Wintour's blessing. As you said, that's not really true. So people in the industry said they didn't really quite agree with that statement from RJ, who is incredible, who I spoke to for the book. And I have the inside story of the September issue in there. But Yeah, I don't think you do need her approval to be successful, but I guess it also kind of depends on what success means to you. And Mm -hmm. there is a quote from Aurora James. I would read it, but I don't want it to be like a spoiler. No, don't. From Aurora James. I put it at the end of the book because it kind of questions this notion of like Anna's power and is it there because we all give it to her? And what if we just like didn't believe in it anymore? Hmm. I have chills. I have chills. It's a good question. It's a really good question. So back to the time, your excerpt in time, one of the things that I found fascinating that you went right into in this piece, and obviously I'm sure in much more depth in the book, is this idea that she seems to have a track record for defending people that 
are controversial or shouldn't necessarily be defended. So of course, John Galliano comes to mind for everyone listening. In, in March 2001, John Galliano very famously told a woman at the next table, I love Hitler. People like you would be dead. Your mothers, your forefathers would all be fucking guessed. And he was convicted in a French court in September. And in February of that same year, Vogue Italy issued a very disturbing defense of his anti-Semitism. And then, you know, July 9th, Anna was caught on camera having lunch with him. And of course, she eventually puts him at Maison Margiela as the head designer. So what do we make of that? And then, you know, she famously, as you said, also defended Georgina Chapman at the very exact moment that Harvey Weinstein was being outed for all of the Me Too stuff. And I know that's a little bit different because that's just like the wife of someone who's done something bad. But in general, she seems to decide what she decides and she doesn't really care if that's the popular opinion. I'm curious what your take is on it. So as I reported in the book, and I think this was in the time excerpt too, with John Galliano, she's the one, do you remember how he was supposed to teach a class at person? Yes. That was going to be like the first thing I think he did after his fall from grace from Dior and that horrible tirade that he was filmed spewing in the bar. And it didn't happen because of protests on campus. Anna Wintour was the one who made the call to try to get him in at persons to teach a class. I didn't know that. I thought that was fascinating. But I think, and a lot of people say, here's why she's contradictory. A lot of people say she is loyal. A lot of people will use that word. She is so loyal. She's the most loyal friend, blah, blah, blah. And in some cases she is, you know, we saw that with John Galliano. We saw that with Georgina Chapman. And I think it's important also to point out with Georgina Chapman and with Marquesa, those dresses were getting red carpet placement, partly because of Weinstein's bullying in the industry in general. So she was benefiting from the way he was intimidating people, I guess you could say. Yes. And that's why it was so controversial for Anna to swoop in and try to rescue her. And he did get Georgina in. I talk about this in the book too. He did get Georgina in to see Anna for a meeting when she was just starting out. And that is really, I'm sure you know, really unusual. You're not just a brand new designer. You get a meeting with Anna Wintour. That doesn't happen. But I think these are examples of her loyalty. However, she is known to drop people who become radioactive to her. And I have examples of that in the book too. And this is one of the most stunning stories, I think, in the book, just in my personal opinion. But Joan Juliet Buck authored a puff piece on the First Lady of Syria. And it ran in vogue. It was about 10 years ago, I think. And there was huge backlash to the piece. And this happened after Anna's staff told her, you can't run this piece. And they really, really tried to get her not to do it. Anna's famously decisive, as I say over and over again in the book. And she wanted to run it because she loved the photo of the first lady that was with the piece. And of course, there was this backlash online. A lot of it fell on Joan Juliet Buck, the writer. Joan Juliet Buck and Anna had known each other for decades since they were like young and in their 20s in London together. So a very long time. And what happened after all of this, Vogue took the story off the internet, defended it, but they never gave Joan Juliet back another assignment. And Anna never talked to her again. So, and another friend told me, you know, when she drops you, you're done. That's it. It's that cold. You can't get back in. 
So I thought that was a stunning, just a stunning story. It's so harsh. It's such harsh behavior. It is harsh behavior. And the other thing that's hard too with Condé Nast and probably at, at other fashion companies, as you know, is when you're at Condé Nast and certainly like in the 90s and the 2000s, when it was roaring, it was great there. It was like Camelot. Um, you have extraordinary perks. You have like an amazing life. You'll get, you know, to expense a lot of things, to take amazing trips, to just have like a very glamorous yeah. existence. And then if Anna or the company decides they're done with you, then that all goes away. And that can be hard for people. Yeah. Didn't Kim France write this piece? Yes. Oh, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. yeah. It's a great piece. It's on the cut. Yeah. Yeah. It's about a great... the Condé Nast holiday lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Such a good piece. Brilliant so, writing. This week happens to be Yom HaShoah, which is the Holocaust Remembrance Day in the Jewish religion. And this month, Bella Hadid is on the cover of Vogue wearing John Galliano dress for Margiela. So we have Bella, who is super anti-Israel, who has basically been inciting anti-Semitism by being anti-Israel publicly to her 50 million followers. And then she's wearing the dress of the designer who says, I love Hitler. I don't think Anna Winter is an anti-Semite. I think she actually has Jewish heritage in her background. But what do you think goes through her head that that's okay? And then simultaneously, a month prior, Gigi had an anti-Israel quote that Vogue posted on their Instagram. I don't know if you saw this. And then it was that crazy backlash. They took it down, but then they put it back up. So what do you think goes through her mind? Because this is serious. This is like Jews are getting actually beat up in the streets. Yeah. I'm a Jewish woman. I am a Jewish mother. I have Jewish children, Jewish husband. Um, yeah, these, these things are all really disturbing to me. Um, I don't want to speak, you know, I don't, I'm not fully up to date on, um, sure. everything that Bella and Gigi have said, but what I can say about Anna, and I don't know what goes through exactly her head, only she knows what she's thinking, but she's really a visual editor and she responds to the picture. So like I said, with a puff piece of the Syrian first lady, like the Assad regime, it, it was like among the worst in terms of human rights violations. Like they're murdering their own, own people, yeah. torture. I mean, and people can research and look up what they're responsible for, but it's awful. Like the fact that this puff piece ran is just crazy that this happened. And she had people warning her not to do it. And she just wanted the photo. So knowing that, and I heard that again and again, that she made so many decisions about things based on the photos. So like she would kill whole articles. She would have no problem. She could have a great article, the best article in five years that anyone has ever written. If she didn't like the photo, it would be gone. So that's just to say she really, she's a visual editor and she takes home that book every night and she goes through, she puts her post-its on it with her comments. Yes, no, whatever it may be. And she's really a visual editor. She's editing for images. I think you're a hundred percent right in that analysis, but like they say, with great power comes great responsibility. I don't think that she should have the luxury of just deciding based on a pretty picture. Like she has a responsibility in her public position and the power she wields, not only herself, but in the way that she leverages and amplifies people to actually make smart choices that 
are like with morals. And, you know, this is not to say that I don't respect her, but I really, really question her sense of responsibility to like greater society beyond Vogue and like Vogue's reputation and her power at Vogue. What would you say? Right. I think that's the great contradiction with Anna. I really think it is. And again, only she knows what's going on in her head. But she's also, we have to remember, I agree with you that with great power comes great responsibility, 100%. We also have to remember that Anna's job is, and she's been so successful for 34 years. She's been amazingly in this job for 34 years. Her job is to make Vogue successful as a business. Yeah. Okay. So she's 72. Mm -hmm. Eventually she's not going to have this job anymore or unless she's going to be like Queen Elizabeth and just stay on no matter how old she gets. But does Vogue exist without Anna Wintour? That's the ultimate question. I think that I personally think that the future of print magazines in general is like influencers get together once a quarter and make the magazine and then disband or something like that, you know? And I have a hard time imagining Vogue after Anna uh, retaining its position, the position that it even manages to have despite not being required reading for fashion people anymore. Um, I do think it's going to change. And there's been a lot of speculation over the years, as you know, about her successor and it's all been wrong all those rumors about her leaving. And there was a time when it was like, Kareen, Kareen, Kareen. Everyone thought Kareen Reutfeld was going to get Anna's job. This was like, oh my gosh, like 15 years ago, maybe 12, 13, maybe years ago. And then lately everyone is speculating, you know, maybe Edward Enenfold will get her job and he's doing an amazing job at British Vogue. He sure is. He's creating beautiful work that people love and his vision is really resonating with people. So I understand why people think he would be her successor and they want him to be her successor. But, you know, Anna has a way of surprising people. She could pick her successor and completely surprise all of us. And all the rumors about her successors in the past have been false. So it's really hard to say what is going to happen after her. She definitely had a little bit of a, a come to with the social injustice of 2020. And she apologized for Vogue's history lack of diversity, not just on the pages of Vogue, but certainly with the designers, the photographers, all the creatives. And of course, we all have seen the pages for years. So this was not like, oh, wow, we had no idea Vogue, you know, didn't support Black creatives in fashion. But that being said, she got a promotion right after that. Right. Right. So at the end of the day, it comes down to... How much money can Anna Wintour bring in to Condé Nast, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Her job is to make Vogue a successful business. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And she's very good. She's very good at corporate politics as well, as you might imagine. Of course she is. You know, right. Right, but people don't think about that. People don't think about her being great at corporate politics. Do you think her skill at corporate politics, do you think she keeps the same icy demeanor that even her bosses might be intimidated by her? Oh, I think they are. I mean, she can. You know, I had meeting scenes throughout the book. Um, but like when she's in the room, if you ask people, you know, you had this meeting with her and what was she like in the room? They always say she's great. Like she makes her points. She's efficient. She'll stand up sometimes for effect. This is the thing that like 
we live in a flaky age and Anna's not flaky. She responds to her emails fast. She says she's going to do something. She does it. These are things that just go a long way in corporate America. And Anna, Anna does them. And I'm not saying that's the only reason she's successful, but it's true. And then I think, you know, she works with a lot of male business executives that Connie and asked them. These are not creative types. I think she prefers hanging out with like, you know, world famous designers and more creative types is my impression. But it sounds to me like they're kind of in awe of her and kind of don't know what to do around her. And that might give her the upper hand in those relationships. But I also learned, and I was really surprised by this, like in a corporation like Condé Nast, there's bureaucracy. There's bureaucracy in any company and she has to deal with it. And she just does it. And she doesn't complain. She doesn't seek exemptions. I think she might, you know, over the course of her time at Condé Nast, she had certain privileges and powers that might enable her to get information that others couldn't. But, you know, she did all the things that like had to be done within the company. And that was just, she was just fine with that. Well, she was paid to, she was paid to very right. But a lot of people, especially like celebrity executives might have a big ego about it and be like, Oh, like I want to move my floor. Well, you have to fill out all this paperwork and do X, Y, and Z and talk to this person. You can't do it for six months, but her assistant's doing that. So why does she get credit for that? Sure. She has people who do it, but she also has to like deal with some of it herself. And it, my impression and talking to people is that she wasn't like complaining about it or making a stink. Like she was just doing all the things that everybody else had to do. I'll never forget one time we were wondering if, if she could come to the show and her office was like, she can come, but she needs to be at the U S open by X time. So can you provide a helicopter? And I was like, I cannot provide a helicopter for her to come to the show. Oh my gosh. What is that? <laughs> thousands of dollars? It's just like, I mean, I wouldn't, we don't need you to come that badly. If you can. So did she come or no? No, she didn't come. She went to the U S open to see her boyfriend. Just kidding. <laughs> um, Amy, this book is epic. I can't wait to sink my teeth into it. Congratulations. This Thank is so really an incredible, incredible thing that you have put together you know, obviously, you know, this is now your second book. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark or what do you want people to walk away with feeling or thinking after they read this book? I want people to feel reflective about power hmm. and Anna's power and why she has that power and how the characterization of it in the press has been treated and whether or not they think it's fair. I love it. And ultimately for you, how do you want to leave for, work? for me personally? I want people to buy the book. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's, you know, absolutely. writing books, the success in the book industry, is, you know, the metric of success, as you well know, is how many books did you sell? And I, I want people to buy the book and I think it's worth buying. I think it's beautiful and it's a good book. I mean, the whole time I was writing the book, and I gave it to so many friends to read, I said, Did the pages turn? Did the pages turn? <laughs> so oh I got like, If they turned fast, I did my job. You certainly did. But by the way, I'm just curious. Did she have any say in the photo that you chose as your cover? Or did she even know? I did not design the cover or select that image, although I did get to approve it. So I don't know all of the behind the scenes details. The cover photo is by Amanda Dem. And it's possible that she had... So typically with, with photos, the photographer has the rights to the right. photo and can sell the rights, you know, to run the photo. 
it's possible that Anna had something in the agreement that like she could approve it. So she may have approved it. I just don't know because I didn't, I wasn't the one who actually designed it and found the photo. Absolutely fascinating. Well, for everyone listening, this is definitely a must read. I can't wait to see Anna the movie because you know that's got to come. And again, (laughs) congratulations. And this was so much fun catching up on all of this. Thank you so much. I loved hearing your Anna stories. So many more. (laughs) I should have called you. I'm now kicking myself. Like, why didn't I call her sooner? Oh my God. Well, I know that you are covered in the Anna story area, but yeah, I mean, listen, she's, you know, she's been in the industry 34 years. All of us have been around for a very long time. There's lots of stories to choose from. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.